The political world is becoming increasingly volatile and unpredictable, while at the same time having a profound impact on the lives of citizens across the globe. This is Polis Podcast, and I am Thomas Barton, the founder of Polis Analysis. Every week, I'll be in the virtual armchair with relevant experts from Polis teams to discuss the key developments shaping the political world. All we need is for you to join us on the virtual sofa. Hello, and uh, welcome to the 10th episode of the Polis podcast. This week, uh, we'll be talking about the future of uh, the Union uh, in relation to the United Kingdom, that is, and the growth of independence movements across various regions in the UK. And I'm joined by a host of experts. With me, I've got uh, Cameron. Uh, Cameron is, uh, well, he's actually based in Scotland at the moment, and he has a, a keen political interest in, uh, in Scottish politics. Uh, he's actually worked in, uh, in the Scottish Parliament um, and uh, he also uh, heads up a lot of our fake news research at Polis Analysis. Uh, with me also is Harry, uh, who's a researcher who focuses on the UK. And later on, we'll be joined by a special guest uh, who used to work for the former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, uh, as well. Um, but to kick off, uh, Harry, why don't we start by talking a little bit about uh, Wales and the current uh, political situation there. Um, there is an independence party uh, that's you know, advocating for independence of Wales, uh, Plaid Cymru. Um, so how, how, how are they getting along? You know, what are the polls suggesting? Is, is Wales uh, set to become independent? Are they, are, they, are they looking to break away from the union? Uh, or actually, do they have pretty you know, low levels of support and nothing will really change in that front? What's, what's your take? Yeah, so I think Wales has always been, um, has never really been central in debates around uh, independence. It's always been discussions of Scottish independence or Irish reunification. And Wales has always been this kind of like fringe discussion on the side. Um, and I think that probably comes from the case that Wales is very narrowly in favour of devolving, um, having to devolve parliament by about a few thousand votes. It's always been kind of slower to the mark when it comes to devolution and independence. But I think what's really happened in the last three years is there's been a marked change in public opinion. So um, there's uh, ITV and YouGov did a poll which had independence at 28% support for yes, with a further 20% undecided. So that's just less than half, haven't got a, either haven't got a firm opinion on independence or support it. So that was quite, I think for a lot of people, quite a shocking poll. And since then, consistently Wales has hit around a third support for independence. Um, and that's hugely up on what it had in the early part of the 21st century. So floating around 11%. So uh, this, this, this is kind of in its early stages of developing. It hasn't really translated yet into more Plaid Cymru MPs or a sort of bigger ground game. But just in terms of polling, that is a, is a marked change. And um, COVID has really accelerated that. So um, the, the First Minister of Wales, uh, Drakeford, has is, is got 57% support on COVID in Wales. Um, and that compares to Boris only having 29% support for COVID uh, in Wales. So there's a sense in amongst the Welsh populace that the Welsh Assembly has handled... The, the coronavirus pandemic sort of better than the um, than the government in London. I think that this has kind of really empowered those people who do support independence or support sort of greater devolution. And um, I think one further thing I'd like to mention is um, the sort of grassroots campaign for independence, which is called Yes Cymru, um, has saw its membership just in the case of this year, jump from 2000 at the beginning of the year to 15,000 by the end. So perhaps in its early stages, but definitely noticeable changes towards Welsh independence. Right, no, that, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, if I, if I can push back on this notion, though, slightly that, 
know, there's an uptick uh, in support for, for Welsh independence. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, in terms of the polls, it, it, uh, it seems to be going, for, uh, you know, it seems to be moving in the direction of, of favouring independence. But fundamentally, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still uh, not a huge amount of, there's still not a huge amount of support for it. And I mean, you mentioned the Welsh Assembly as well, but uh, my understanding is in, uh, in July 2020, um, so last, last summer, there was a vote in the Welsh Assembly on whether to move a motion uh, for an independence referendum, and that was uh, handsomely uh, defeated in the Welsh Assembly by 43 votes to nine. So um, you know, is it actually realistic, even though there is an, an increase in support for independence? You know, first of all, that increase, okay, it, it's significant compared to the 10% the polls you mentioned of the past, but uh, is it actually realistic that uh, that there will even be a referendum granted and that if, if, even if the Welsh Assembly did allow one to go through, there would be an, enough support for uh, for it to pass and for Wales to break away. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely worth noting that you shouldn't get carried away with polls like this. Um, but I think it is also worth noting that at the turn of the century in Scotland, the polling wasn't dissimilar to where it is in Wales now. And these movements can accelerate very quickly. Um, so perhaps like a um, an independent Wales is not on on the horizon in a matter of sort of years but the fact that we're having this conversation now and the media is really adjusting to, to start discussing this uh, I think is really um, symptomatic of the fact that it's kind of becoming part of the political agenda um, and perhaps in a, in a UK I'm sure we'll talk about this later but in a UK where Scotland is to leave then that discussion is going to become more forefront when the the prospect of independence becomes very real so yeah that's not so yeah don't get carried away and say Wales become independent very soon but I think it's it's interesting that this conversation is becoming more more prominent. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, well, we'll have to keep uh, keep track of the direction of travel when it comes to the situation in Wales, because uh, otherwise we'll find ourselves off guard with uh, with an independent Wales in twenty years' time because we didn't look at the sort of first uh, warning signs and writing on the wall, so to speak. Um, but let, let's let's move to another part of the United Kingdom where you know independence has been a topic of discussion for some time. Uh, and let's, ha let's have a discussion about Scotland. So Cameron, if I can bring you in, uh, can you give our listeners uh, an update on, on uh, the, the state of play in Scottish politics and how the uh, Scottish National Party is, is doing in Scotland and uh, what, the, what the latest polls are when it comes to uh, support um, or opposition to um, the independence of Scotland? Yeah, so that, that's, that's really the sort of million dollar question, really, where, where support is at just now. Um, we, we've just come out of uh, parliamentary elections in Scotland where the SNP uh, once again uh, won, won the quite, quite resoundingly but not quite with the majority. Um, right now they're, they're relying quite heavily on the Green Party to prop up their government uh, and they're, they're in discussions with them uh, over forming a coalition and, and the Green Party are, are vital to the SNP's uh, moves towards hold, holding a second referendum. Um, there's lots of ways that, that uh, the, the argument's trying to be framed just now, that there's a sort of head versus heart or the, the sort of empiricist versus um, the rationalist uh, sort of view. And, and I think the SNP are doing quite a good job of, of um, winning over Scottish voters on, on all of those fronts just now. Um, but one of the caveats to that is that, um, that they're seeking a second referendum in, in the backdrop of, of a pandemic. Uh, and that seems to be the, the real stumbling block just now. So um, it, it, when Parliament reconvenes, uh, the SNP are planning on putting a bill to Parliament uh, to, to put through another referendum. 
which does of course rely on on assent from the UK Parliament and it, it might be perceived as undermining the legitimacy of the Scottish Parliament to, to deny them that. Um, but the, the question just now kind of remains whether the SNP actually want to host a referendum in, in the backdrop of a pandemic. Uh, and that, that seems to be the, the current state of play. Right, so that, that, that's an interesting uh, update, uh, Cameron. Um, I mean, what, what I want to try and understand uh, by, you know, just by discussing this with you is whether or not uh, support for independence has actually been uh, reducing in the last year or so. Because I looked at a few uh, opinion polls before, uh, before uh, joining this, uh, this podcast, and it, it does look as though, you know, last year in 2020, that there was a huge surge in support for uh, for an independent Scotland. I mean, uh, some polls, I mean, I think it was one particular poll, potentially it was an outline, as Harry mentioned, uh, you shouldn't look, to, <laughs> look too deeply into polls and they, they can be, they can be uh, you know, completely inaccurate as, as the UK has experienced time and time again. But there was one poll that suggested that there was 58% support uh, for Scottish independence and polls were suggesting for six consecutive months of last year that there was support for an independent Scotland, uh, you know, and there was a majority of support there. Whereas uh, this year, that seems to have uh, to have reduced somewhat. Um, I mean, the Scotsman had a poll that came out in May of this year, and it was extremely low uh, in terms of saying uh, there were only 40 percent of Scottish people saying that uh, the uh, SNP government even had a mandate to allow for a second referendum uh, vote to take place in the next five years. So. Uh, there seems to be a falling support for even holding a referendum in the in the first place. So, you know, is, is it true to say that that perhaps uh, you know uh, things are going in the the other way, and the SNP is not sort of uh, as popular when it comes to its calls for independence, or is that is that inaccurate? Yeah, I I think that the pendulum swings one way and the other um, quite regularly, and and just now what we're seeing with with the success of the uh, UK's vaccine program, and and again the backdrop of the the COVID pandemic. Um, Harry touched on Mark Drakeford's approval ratings in comparison to Boris Johnson's approval ratings and dealing with the pandemic and certainly Nicola Sturgeon could be compared to Mark, Mark Drakeford in, in that respect. When she becomes more popular uh, because of her policies towards, um, towards COVID, support for independence naturally goes up and, and when the UK is seen to be doing the right thing, support for uh, the union tends to go up. So it, the, the pendulum swings uh, regularly and right now it certainly seems to be in, in the union's favour uh, thanks, thanks to the, the vaccine rollout uh, amongst other uh, less popular policies from from Nicola Sturgeon, and so much as she she's been much more cautious in the opening up of, of the economy, uh, whereas England uh, they they've been back partying from day to night. Yeah, that's a good point, and I mean I, I suppose it's worth remembering that these sort of debates on on independence, which are fundamentally constitutional questions, they they don't take place in a vacuum, and actually there are sort of external factors like the you know vaccination program, for instance, and. A response to you know the 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 COVID pandemic that you and Harry have both mentioned, you know th those can also be driving factors behind support for the union or opposition to it. Um, but I think what what's important to also talk about is you know given yes it's a constitutional issue, but it can also have absolutely you know profound consequences on the lives of citizens uh, across the United Kingdom. Um, so you know let, let's have a bit of a discussion in terms of what what all of this actually means concretely. For individuals, so that's what we're always trying to do at Podus is translating what you know high-level political developments can actually mean for 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 everyday uh, individuals. So, 
Harry, if I can come back to you, um, let's say that theoretically, you know, in 10, 20 years time, uh, Wales does, uh, you know, succeed in, in, in uh, becoming independent, or if at least uh, Plaid Cymru, uh, you know, is able to galvanise much more support for its policies and its, and its politics, what would it actually mean uh, for people in Wales? I mean, what would be the sort of economic impact, for instance, or uh, the impact on families, uh, the ability to travel across the union? Um, you know, what, what does any of this actually mean for, for people living in Wales? I mean, I think it's fair to say it would have sort of a profound impact on so many different aspects of, of Welsh life. I think we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this in Scotland as well. The key question would be whether or not an independent Wales would look to join the European Union. So obviously Wales did vote to leave. It was, a very, it was by a narrow margin in England, but they did vote to leave. Um, but the, the vehicles pushing Welsh independence, like Plaid Cymru and Yes Cymru, all support Wales rejoining the EU. So if, if Wales was to rejoin the EU, there'd be um, a significant land border with England. And the specifics of how that would work would be yet to be discussed, but there would be some, it's likely there'd be divergence and a requirement for sort of barriers to trade across. So um, a border of that size uh, would be quite, quite sort of a, a sticky point to manage when it comes to negotiations around it. Um, obviously, Welsh, Wales votes a slightly different way to England. Wales typically votes for like, Labour, but it's obviously become less profound in recent years, but they typically return Labour seats. So maybe an independent Wales would be, um, would be more likely to return sort of left-wing governments. But um, again, it's, it's, so difficult, it's so difficult to tell with so many moving parts. Again, currency being an issue. So I think that key question of the relationship between an independent Wales and Europe is really where, where you'd want to be looking for answers to that question. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a really good point, and I think that actually Welsh politicians probably would, well, some of them would like the idea of being able to uh, return to receiving those EU uh, structural uh, funds. I mean, uh, Wales, uh, when the United Kingdom was still part of the EU, was all the regions across the European Union that received the most uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, funds from the EU um, for development. Um, but Cameron, can I put the same point to you? What what would an independent Scotland? actually mean for for scottish uh, citizens in particular but actually for for people across the united kingdom because you know as we mentioned uh, just now uh, i mean uh, support for independence in scotland is much greater than in wales and the possibility of an independent scotland is uh, is is far more likely so what, what would it actually mean for for people because that's what matters ultimately yeah i i think the the, the people side of the debate the, the debate tends to focus on the the economics of independence and i think it's it's a really important point and it's one that the the union tends to win because scotland is a net beneficiary of the the barnet formula uh we get more from the the uk government than than england wales and northern ireland uh, and because of that it, it makes it a sort of easy argument for the unionists to win um, the the uh, GRS statistics that, that came out just today uh, told us that, that Scotland's running at about a 22% budget deficit, uh, which would, of course, be totally uh, unsustainable as an independent country. And, and the argument then goes back to, well, an independent Scotland could potentially qualify to join the European Union, uh, just, just like Wales would. Um, and I, I think for, for citizens... Uh, it, it definitely comes down to these sort of economic issues uh, when, when you look at the, the actual implications of becoming independent. But the, the issue with that is that the, the debate doesn't really centre around the economic issues. It, it centres around these sort of rationalist issues of, of whether we want to be ruled by parties that we didn't vote for or 
whether we want to be ruled by uh, you know people that we did actually put put into government. Um, so it, you know you, you can see where where the debate becomes something of the head versus the heart or the the rationalist versus sure. the empiricist. Well, I mean that's a very uh, familiar uh, dichotomy that the UK has experienced in its politics recently. <laughs> um, I don't need to state which referendum I'm referring to. Um, but I mean, let, yeah, I, I take your point that uh, identity can often trump uh, economics. And before we bring in Patrick um, into this discussion, because he'll, he'll have some, some, some key points to make, I'm sure, I just want to stick with the economics of uh, an independent Scotland for a moment, because um, you know, whilst you're right, uh, Cameron, that actually a lot of the economic uh, sort of evidence suggests that Scotland would be worse off outside of the United Kingdom, there is a case, is there not, uh, that actually... Uh, Scotland is suffering from being part of the United Kingdom and being outside of the European Union. Obviously, Scotland voted uh, in high numbers to remain as part of the EU. Um, and some studies that I've looked at have suggested that actually uh, a Scotland that's outside of, uh, that's outside of the European Union uh, could see its economic uh, output reduced by, by around 2%. So would an independent Scotland joining the European Union actually be better off economically because it would have access to the EU single market, you know, it's a market of almost 500 million consumers. Um, you know, is, is it a bit more complicated than how it's often presented by those campaigning in favour of uh, the union? Yeah, of course, it's an enormously complex issue. And, uh, you know, an economist would be much better qualified to answer that question than I. Um, but but I think that there's certainly a feeling uh, amongst unionists that they, they, they won this argument. The the uh, the Scottish government like to point to IFS statistics uh, regarding taking the UK out of the EU, uh, but when it comes to the IFS statistics uh, regarding Scotland's economy, they they tend to brush them off as um, you know British government propaganda against independence. So it, it's difficult to know who to believe uh, when, when discussing the economics of independence. But uh, as it stands, certainly in light of the GERS statistics. Um, Scotland isn't best uh, placed economically to, to move forward and uh, it, it's something that that of course the Scottish government will, will seek to rectify before actually holding a referendum and that that is important to note that there's no uh, you know whilst it may seem uh, whilst it may seem sort of inevitable that there will be a referendum in the coming years there's there's no real pressure just now for them to, to host one in the near future obviously as, as we recover from the, the uh, COVID pandemic. No, that's a good point, and we, we we should we should come to that uh, to that point later on in the discussion in terms of whether the central government, the British government, will even grant uh, Scotland and and Wales, for that matter, you know, uh, votes of independence. But look, you mentioned Cameron that, a, that an economist would be uh, best place to talk about the sort of economic impact. So I, I'm going to bring in Patrick, who actually does have an economics uh, background. Uh, so Patrick, and um, you you've also. Uh, worked for uh, Gordon Brown, the former uh, British Prime Minister, um, and you've, you've worked with him in particular on his work in terms of trying to promote the union and of ensuring that Scotland remains uh, a full member of the of the union. So, you know, what what's your take on what's happening in Scotland? I mean, we talked uh, we talked a bit earlier with Cameron and Harry about polls, but you've been based in in Scotland, so you've been on the ground. So, what's your take? Do you think that actually there is a lot of support for independence, and is the is it too late to reverse the tide, or is it actually the fact that you know Scotland is 
it, it is possible to, to keep Scotland within, within the union. Thanks, Thomas, and thanks for having me. Um, well, it's a fascinating time in Scotland at the moment. Uh, since the 2014 referendum, I think the SNP's control over Scottish politics has been impressive and unique, really. Uh, and the question for the union side is what do they do with the time that they've just been given, I think. They've just been given, I think, about four years. I'd say in the next few years, there'll be a constitutional crisis and we'll see how that goes. And I think it will become fever pitch. It will become pretty tense in Scotland and Scottish politics. And we'll have to see how that all develops. But I doubt that Boris Johnson will give in without maybe getting some concessions back. We don't know what those will be. But we will have to see. And Boris Johnson in, and Nicola Sturgeon are going to be at each other's throats, it's clear, for the next few years. Now, the question of if the referendum will happen, uh, I, I doubt it in the next few years. I doubt that Boris Johnson will make the risk. And I actually doubt that Nicola Sturgeon will make the risk. Because but, but Patrick, if, if Boris Johnson doesn't take that risk, doesn't he risk fueling greater support uh, for the independence uh, movement I if know. he withholds the right for that vote to take place? Yes. It, it, there is a clear democratic ground for another referendum, as any referendum. But the benefit of being in control for Boris Johnson is that he's able to time that referendum. And he's also able to make the case that a referendum has taken place seven years ago. And in reality, you can't have a referendum every couple of years as the polls change. And even though you might say that this will uh, press forward the SNP agenda, they're not going to push for a referendum when they're at 50% at 50%. They're not mm. going to do that. It would be catastrophic for them to lose another referendum, just like we've seen in other locations like Quebec and other places. So unless, I think, I think the clear thing here is, it's unfortunate, but the polls, the kind of polling industry, even though obviously that ties into fake news and, and, and elements like this, but, but kind of polls are well regarded at the moment, in the Scottish media at least. And as long as the polls stay neck and neck, I think it will be tense, but we won't have a referendum for now. Okay, and actually, I mean, because you brought in polls, I sort of can't resist to ask you this question, but I did mention a bit earlier on, before you joined us, that there was a, a poll in May of this year in the Scotsman, which uh, talked about uh, sort of whether Scots regarded it as even legitimate for the SNP government to grant a referendum uh, vote, and, you know, 40%, uh, I mean, only 40% of people believe that actually the Scottish government had that mandate uh, to grant that vote in the next five years. So do you think that's the sort of, are, are those actually the polls which are sort of giving Boris Johnson the confidence not to grant a referendum and suffer any sort of adverse consequences for that? I, I think what that poll shows is that, yes, that people, I'm on the union side, for, for example, people on both sides have to realise that there's major support on either side. But the majority of Scots want a legitimate and they want a smooth process if we're going to have another referendum and as the political tide sways one way or the other. So you're not going to have 
I, I doubt you'll see Nicola Sturgeon, for example, go for a Catalonia style, which maybe some of her predecessors, like Alex Salmon, would, would maybe go for if he was, if he was in power. Right. But I, I, I doubt, I, I see there's a kind of acknowledgement of a, a, a smooth way to another referendum if it does happen. And if it does happen in the next few years, it'll be down to polls and it won't be down to the tensions right now. Yeah, that's okay. That's an interesting point. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Catalonia because I do think that sometimes when we talk about uh, the debate on, on on the future of the union in the in the United Kingdom, we forget about the international dimension. And um, well, I'm sure you've been uh, familiar with these arguments, Patrick, uh, coming from the other side. But often uh, the SNP talks about having an independent Scotland being a full member of the European Union, but uh, EU member states like Spain will probably want to exercise their veto. Uh, and pre and prevent Scotland from joining uh, the EU, given that could risk fueling uh, independence in, in in Catalonia, for instance. So that that international dimension is important. But Patrick, oh, another question I want to ask for you, given given your previous role in working for for Gordon Brown uh, in promoting the union, um, perhaps this is yeah. To, to put it bluntly, do you actually think that you know? establishment figures and uh, you know big names in in uk politics are on the union side is that going to be uh, what it takes to prevent uh, a Scot an independent scotland will, will the likes of gordon brown you know campaigning on this issue be enough to defend the union or, or will something else be needed to uh, to turn the tide uh, in, against uh, increasing smp support for a second independence uh, referendum well, I may be biased, as you mentioned, my previous employment, but uh, I think it's a yes and a no. Um, obviously, uh, big, big name politicians um, have a biased impact on the media and framing the conversation and being able to have rallies and bring in money and support for political parties and movements. So, yes, for example, Gordon Brown will have an impact if there is another referendum. but. I doubt that you'll see just him. I think you'll see uh, progress, hopefully, on the union side of creating a new generation. And there has to be a new generation. And I have to say, if there's 50, it, it, it's a bizarre scenario because I think the Scottish National Party have a great fan, fan base, have a great support and, and fan and rally base uh, when it comes to referendums and rallies and elections. But the pro-union side, it's divided. But there is clearly a strong swell of support. And if that isn't consolidated into a movement and a new generation of um, activists, then I doubt we'll get anywhere in the pro-union side. But I think there'll be progress made on that. And if there is another referendum, Gordon Round will have a place, but so will others, I believe. But you, you say that a new a new generation is needed. Is it not actually a new approach that would be required for the union campaign to be successful? Because um, what I put to you and, and to Cameron as well, given Cameron, you've worked in the Scottish Parliament as well. Um, isn't it the case that actually you're going to need figures from different political parties sort of come together uh, and unite around their sort of common interests of defending the union uh, to ensure that uh, you know uh, Scotland doesn't go independent? I mean, ultimately, uh, Patrick, won't Gordon Brown need to work? hand in glove with the likes of, uh, of Boris Johnson, uh, Michael Gove and others to ensure that, uh, that the SNP is unsuccessful in, 
and delivering no, in Scotland. I, I doubt you'll see them on the same stage at all. But, but don't they need to be is, on the same stage? That's what um, I'm wondering. They, they, I, I don't think so, because they have different arguments. They have a same point of view, but you don't see, you don't see two politicians from opposing parties on the same stage when it comes to campaigning in elections. When it comes to a referendum, yes, they'll have the same point, point of view, but they will be courting voters and courting different me uh, methods of, of getting the union side um, coherent. And when it comes to Boris Johnson, he's got to realize that he's got to come up with a different approach. And yes, the Labour side, for example, needs to come up with a different approach, but coming together doesn't, uh, clashes too much, I would say. And in, in the end, a coherent SNP is really the successful element of the pro-independent side. And creating a kind of fudge of the, the Labour and the Conservative parties doesn't provide that. And they need to realise that and they need to come up with coherent policies and objectives themselves rather than merging, like we saw in 2014, which wasn't successful at all in the ways they did it then. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, Cameron, you've just had the position from the from the Labour camp uh, in terms of uh, not thinking that uh, you know you need you need uh, political figures from across across different parties to come together and share a platform when it comes to defending the union. I mean, what's what's your view on that, Cameron? Is it the case that actually you know figures like Gordon Brown uh, will have to keep making an impact in terms of talking about uh, you know pro-union arguments, framing them in a sort of social social justice uh, sort of context? Uh, and then you know you'll have other sort of conservative politicians making different cases. Uh, do you think that actually it's possible for uh, the union camp to to be successful in preventing a, an independent Scotland if they if they don't want to share share a stage? Yeah, it, it's an interesting debate to be had during the most recent elections. Um, the the Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross he. Um, he, he attempted to form that uh, pro-union coalition to, to some extent, um, asking the leaders of, of the opposition parties uh, who, who were in favour of the union, the, the Lib Dems and, and the Labour Party in Scotland, um, if they wanted to form some sort of uh, pro-union coalition, not, not necessarily on, on all issues of politics, that would be impossible, they all come from different sides of the political spectrum, but on this particular issue, um, there was moves from the Scottish Conservatives to to do that, and, and they were uh, they were quite damningly rejected uh, by by the leaders of, of these unionist parties, and and um, I I think that that is quite telling for the, the lay of the land of, of um, how these unionist parties are going to go about resisting, uh, firstly calls for a second referendum, and and if there were to be another referendum, how they'd cooperate together. Uh, I think Patrick was was quite right in saying you're you're not likely to see Gordon Brown on the same uh, on the same stage as Boris Johnson because they they appeal to to different sides of, of the argument really um you have the sort of social democratic wing of of people who who would resist independence as opposed to the conservative wing and within the conservative party in Scotland itself they have what they call the, the Boris problem you uh, i'm sure a, a few might have noted Boris Johnson never really came north of the border during the election campaign and that that was quite telling really um 
he he's seen as a, a a bit of a burden to Scottish conservatism because he's so unpopular here. Whereas other figure, figures within the cabinet, um, Michael Gove, for instance, who was born and raised in Aberdeen, uh, has a much sort of wider appeal here because a lot of the argument against uh, the union is is this sort of almost class difference between Scotland and England, where in England, certainly the southeast, there's um, aristocrats discussing the, the preservation of Aristotelian ecclesiasticism, whereas we up in Scotland are, are just minding our own businesses. And, and that sort of sense of detachment between Holyrood and Westminster is you know, a, a real, really large part of why people might sway uh, towards independence. And um, that, that bridge needs to be crossed. Uh, and and I, I, I do think for Patrick's part, uh, Gordon Brown recently has been doing a good job of that and appealing to the kind of people that uh, the, the Conservative Party might not otherwise appeal to. Okay, so for now it sounds like uh, Boris and Gordon Brown will be very much uh, standing on different stages. Um, but Patrick, uh, before, before you go, uh, you know, I'm going to take, take a quick uh, sweepstake here, but um, actually I'll put this question to all of you. Uh, yes or no, will there be a, a referendum in Scotland in the next five years on uh, whether or not Scotland should remain a part of the United Kingdom? And uh, if that referendum were to take place, which way would it go? Not if Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister. If Boris Johnson remains Prime Minister for the next five years, I don't think he would be able to risk a referendum. Um, as Cameron says, there may be other... Um, people in the Conservative Party that might have more, more appeal. But I doubt Boris Johnson will do that. And I doubt there'll be another referendum in, in the first, in the next five years, I'd say. But maybe and, after and if, that. And if Boris Johnson does you know, disappear off the political scene within the next five years, and there is a different uh, uh, Conservative leader and uh, Prime Minister, do you think that, uh, and let's say that that independence referendum did take place, which way, which way would it go? Well, I think it will be very even. I doubt that either side will uh, uh, surpass, let's say, 60% of the vote. So I think it could go either way. Um, if, if I had to put it, I would still put it on the pro-union side, um, but it will be close if it does happen. There we go. I got you to make a prediction in the end. Uh, Cameron, Harry, what, what, what are your takes? Um, um... I think uh, as long as the Conservatives have a strong majority, I, I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, I don't see a, a Conservative Prime Minister being um, confident enough that they're going to win it to, to call an election. I think in the instance, kind of linked to what we were saying earlier, in the instance there was a, an unclear election result in the UK, say Labour made quite significant gains, I think there is a strong potential. I think, um, I think it's quite, quite hard to see a route for Labour back to power without the SNP support. Um, and I think that would be a prerequisite for any sort of deal between Labour and the SNP. So I think my thing would be probably no for the next five years, but I think if a referendum was called, my prediction would be a narrow yes win, I'd say. Interesting. Okay, and Cameron? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I, I don't foresee, um, uh, perhaps a 10 <laughs> perhaps years prediction, I don't foresee Boris Johnson uh, being Prime Minister in five years' time, and, and were that the case, um, I, I think that there there probably is a likelihood that we could see a, a referendum uh, within the next five years. The material changes 
that were required to have taken place for there to be a mandate for a second referendum, i.e. Brexit, um, and indeed uh, COVID, the, that's, that's just changed the landscape of the country so much means that, that there has been some sort of change. And were there to be a bill passed in the, in the Scottish Parliament, um, any government would risk undermining the, the legitimacy of the Scottish Parliament uh, to, to oppose that. Um, so I would say yes, but not within the next five years, not until we've recovered from COVID. Yeah, it's a good point in, in relation to the fact that you know, the political landscape is volatile and you do have other sort of developments that can spring up at any time and have an impact, which is why uh, <laughs> predicting in politics is a dangerous, a dangerous game and sometimes it is just a game. Um, but Patrick, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, that was really helpful to get your, your insights, uh, given, your, given your background and focus on uh, Scottish politics. So thank you. Um, but Harry, I want to turn to another another topic in terms of uh, uh, in the you know in terms of uh, movements towards independence across the United Kingdom, um, and I want to talk a little bit about um, the sort of increase in recent years of English nationalism. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily suggesting that England is now also going to push for an independence uh, sort of movement, but there there has been an increase in English nationalism, hasn't there? And potentially, it's even been driven because of uh, different sort of uh, regional uh, identities that are being forged, you know, across the rest of the UK. So what, what, what on earth is happening is happening there? So I think uh, we've obviously just had the, um, the Euros this summer. And um, the last time England was in a, was in a final was in obviously 1966, I'm sure many of our listeners will know that. But the, what's really interesting is if you look at pictures of that is that the entire stands is just covered in Union Jacks. And that is really seen, was seen then as the symbol of Englishness was like fly Union Jack. And it, um, isn't, if you look at the 2021 game, um, match, you see the St George's Cross being flown everywhere. So there, this I think is symptomatic of a wider change that's happened. And I think it's a split that's occurring between Britishness and Englishness. And I think these two are becoming quite separate concepts. Um, so there's some really interesting polling on this. Um, British Social Attitudes, it sort of monitors public opinion towards, um, towards British and Englishness, asks this question that to those in England, that if you're to, forced to choose between which between both identities which one do you, do you choose and what these pollings have suggested that in recent years given a forced choice um 70 percent of people choose to emphasize their english identity which is up quite significantly and in the last five to ten years englishness has now overtaken britishness in forced choice polling um so i think that's quite interesting but it's, it's worth noting it's very different from scottish nationalism welsh nationalism it doesn't so much um doesn't so much have that independence angle it's more about the idea of being a sort of assertive England and England who's not afraid of to sort of be proud of its identity and the people who tend to identify with like proud Scottishness and be supporting Scottish independence tend to be sort of younger more left-wing minded voters but it's completely flipped in England so the people who identify as England um, by census data broadly are older rural they tend to have voted leave um, they tend to be conservative-leaning voters, so it's quite a different picture. Um, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. And um, the the 2011 census census data, if you sort of map it um, on England of like who's Britain, who do identifies as British, who identifies as English, you see like London, Manchester as these sort of bastions of Britishness, and the rest mm. of the country sort of a picture of Englishness. So it's, it's an interesting one to follow. Um, I think something that it, it is sort of subtly changing the background. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because it's, it's just added sort of another level of complexity in terms of the politics within the United Kingdom. I think a lot of, sort of our international listeners 
uh, will sort of already be, you know, scratching their heads as to what's happening in the UK because obviously uh, you know, there was a lot of turbulence with, with Brexit. And now actually what we're realising is internally there are all sorts of other <laughs> political dynamics um, at play. Um, but look, given we've talked about increasing independence movements in Wales and Scotland, and now Harry, you've just sort of mentioned that there's a growing English uh, sort of identity that's being forged. I mean, what on earth is going to happen next to the UK? I mean, it sounds as though, based on the conversation we've had so far, you know, the UK is becoming increasingly polarised and divided. Um, and, you know, what do we think is actually going to happen next? I mean, do you foresee uh, within our, uh, <laughs> within our li lifetimes a total, uh, you know, breakdown of, uh, of the union? And what, what would that mean for, uh, for our standing in, in the world? I mean... You know, since Brexit already, the UK sort of international reputation has been rocked a little bit and it hasn't necessarily been facilitated uh, by certain uh, political developments that have happened since Brexit, uh, you know, like the internal market uh, bill and the sort of uh, uh, precarious position in which it placed the rule of law, uh, sort of <laughs> cast the UK in a particular light. The recent cuts to international aid spending also sent a message uh, the UK's uh, recent decision alongside the United States to uh, totally withdraw from Afghanistan also sent a message to the rest of the world. Um, I mean, what on earth is going to happen to the UK and how will it be perceived uh, by the international community going forward, given these increasing, increasingly popular movements for, uh, for independence or for separate identities to, to forge within the UK? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's a really interesting point. And I, I, I think once the ball gets rolling on on something like this it it, it can often seem like it, it becomes inevitable but what we've seen with other um, separatist movements we we mentioned catalonia uh, and we've seen we've seen it in south american countries we we've seen it in in quebec as well it 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 doesn't necessarily always lead to to that outcome and i i think you know as the political landscape changes and it's changing faster than it ever has in our lifetimes uh, we're we're going to see a lot more of these things popping up. Like um, Radio Four had had a show um, a week ago uh, where they're discussing Anglian independence and and people I, identifying as Anglian over over English and and these are things that we never would have even considered uh, up until recently. Uh, and it, and it all you know it all links back to uh, previous referendums that we've had ever since um, devolution happened in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. Uh, it, it's it's become um, a, a hot topic and it's, it's become something that, that's been promised and we've had referenda we've had um, we've had votes on on our own independence from Europe we've had votes on independence within our country and and yet the UK remains and um, certainly for the for the foreseeable future that that looks like it, it how it's going to stay right well look I mean we've we've talked about uh, political dynamics across across the United Kingdom. We haven't talked about Anglian independence, but that will have to be a conversation uh, for another day. Um, but thanks so much for for joining me. It's been a fascinating discussion, and we'll uh, at Polis have to keep track of of all these sort of uh, developments across the UK to figure out what on earth will happen next, and uh, you know what what it will mean ultimately for for UK citizens and and for the wider international community, given given the UK's position. Uh, as, as, as a global player, even, even despite, uh, despite Brexit. Um, but look, that was the 10th episode of the Polis podcast. Uh, we'll be taking a break uh, over the next couple of weeks, like everyone else, uh, given it's uh, August and uh, the height of the summer. 
but thanks so much uh, to all our listeners for joining us week in and week out. And we'll be back with you um, at some point in early September. And we'll keep trying to unpick the major political developments that are shaping all of our lives. But Cameron, Harry, thank you so much for joining me. We hope you enjoyed this Polis podcast episode. At Polis Analysis, we are fully devoted to helping individuals better navigate the political world. So we would love to hear your thoughts and please do share any suggestions you may have for future Polis podcast episodes. Follow the Polis podcast channel on Spotify to access our weekly episodes. And if you want to better navigate the political world with accessible, fact-based and impartial analysis of global politics, then sign up to our free newsletter at www.polisanalysis.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.